Hello and welcome to Word Ramblings, a podcast about stories and storytelling. I'm Mark, I have a background in English literature and storytelling. And I'm Charlotte and I have a background in social work and psychology. This week we're discussing David Bowie's 1972 album, The Rise and Fall of Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars. They hadn't come up with concise titles in the 70s. I think there's a long and proud tradition of very long titled works. We'll discuss Fallout Boy in another episode. <laughs> we're not going to discuss Fallout Boy in another episode, I'm just going to say that now. Don't. I mean, do keep listening, but not if you're waiting for that. I don't know, are you big on Fallout Boy? No. Okay. As we're doing a full album and somewhat of a concept album today, things are going to be a little bit different. We're going to discuss each song, song by song, and talk about what it's about, what themes we see in it, and how the music supports it. And as we go through, we might reference back to previous things, and then at the end we're going to have a more general discussion about the album and overall themes as a whole. As much as there are spoilers for an album, there'll be spoilers for Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars. If we have any other spoilers, we'll drop those in right about now. Hello! Not too many spoilers this week. There are some spoilers for the TV show Mad Men, and also some mentions of the Andrew Lloyd Webber musical Jesus Christ Superstar. There's also some content warnings for discussion of suicide and drug abuse, but nothing too graphically gone into. I think that's it. And back to the past. Welcome back. As you say, the whole, this will be a little bit different. I realize that because we've been skipping around different mediums, we keep saying, this week will be a little bit different. And I feel like it's just our format will shift according to what kind of story we're talking about. And just, yeah, don't get too attached to a particular order of discussion, I guess. Yeah, that's fair. Every single episode will be completely unique. We can only hope. Well, I mean, you know, this will, next time we do an episode on an album, we can say, this will be kind of like when we did that album before. Yeah, yeah. They're um, all very, they'll all be sort of variations on a theme. Oh, oh. Happy New Year! Yes, Happy New Year! Hopefully this year will be better than the last. I mean, it's a low bar. It's true. I mean, it was no 2016. That was pretty bad, too. But we got married in 2016. We did get married. <laughs> so that's pretty great. Yeah. I mean, that, that sort of like stopped it being entirely terrible. Yeah. Everything else that happened that year. In fact, David Bowie died. Yeah, so. which was pretty awful. And I'm, I still am like, oh, I'm getting new work from him. Except we are supposed to get new work from him. Just new work that he recorded pre-humously. I'm not sure that's how the words work. But yes, um, we're just coming up on the four-year anniversary of Bowie's death. Um, it did come out a little bit afterwards that apparently there was a lot of work that he sort of put aside when he was recording to be released after his death or later because they didn't fail in his albums and he was a weird dude who might put aside work and just be like, you know what, people can hear this after I'm dead. Well, apparently some of it is supposed to come out on dates correlated with different milestones of, I think, his daughter's life. Uh. So that might be part of why, you know, it's been four years and we haven't had a release since Black Star. The releases may not be timed in relation to his death so much as in relation to other world events and, yeah. and family events. So, yeah. That's what I'm looking forward to in the apocalypse, is that, like, I think that when everything starts falling apart, there will just be a quiet David Bowie release album. 
Mm-hmm. I feel like you would put one in the for that. Like they are scheduled though. Yeah. So anyway. Okay. Shall we get into a plot summer? Sure. Did you want to summarize or should I? You want me to summarize it? I feel like we're gonna argue about the summary. This is the problem. Okay. Well I mean mine's gonna be super vague. Okay, let's go with your super vague. Okay. Again, this is a concept album, and so the plot is kind of open to interpretation. We should say, with all of our episodes, what you hear is our opinion and our interpretation of the work. Everybody will have their own personal conversation when they interact with the work. This is ours. If you disagree with us, I'm sorry. We'd love to hear your thoughts. We, we won't necessarily change our mind. But, so if we state anything as fact on here, then you're like, that's not what that means. Maybe we're wrong. You should tell us. Anyway, so in the album The Rise and Fall of Ziggy, Stardust, and the Spiders from Mars, Earth is doomed in five years, but then the alien Ziggy Stardust comes to Earth and becomes this sort of rock and roll messiah, and presumably the Earth is saved, but Ziggy Stardust also sort of goes a little mad with fame and goes a little off the rails. And at some point, he either dies or is killed, and people are sad about it. That is my interpretation of what happens in this story. I think Mark has a different interpretation. I'm not convinced that Ziggy dies, but we can get into that. Okay. Okay. So I guess, track what? Am I forgetting anything? Brief summary of work? What we did to prepare? Yes. To prepare for this episode, we listened to the album. A few times, and took notes. And read the lyrics. Yeah, and yeah, read the lyrics, and I looked up different things about the album and the different songs, and read like the Library of Congress entry for it, which is very interesting. So, yeah, and just did general Googling about the album to sort of fill in some gaps or get a sense of what gaps had been filled in, because from what I see online, David Bowie kind of fleshed out the story in interviews after the album had been released. So there might be more that some people consider to be part of the story than what we're talking about here, but we're just talking about the parts of the story that were included in the album. Um, Okay, so the album opens with five years, which in the briefest summary is saying that there's five years left because the Earth is dying. Mm -hmm. You sort of seem to get these images that it's too much for a lot of people to take that news. The, it's not the narrator of the song. Singer. Uh, the singer for the song references sort of his head feeling too full with everyone and there's people attacking each other in the streets, sort of chaos going on. Do you agree with that as a reading? I definitely do. I actually, my, my note is people are freaking out. <laughs> uh, I have people losing their shit. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. There's also some lyrics that make it very clear that the this anticipated end of the earth is a surprise. Like, people were not expecting this. There's references to, like, not necessarily believing the newscaster at first until the newscaster, like, broke down sobbing. And at that point being like, oh, wow, no, this, this is really happening. Shit. You know? And there's also a lot of commentary that reflects... In the wake of this news, a lot of other things and, like, material things sort of seem frivolous at this point, and the singer realizing who's important to him, like, talking about the person that he observes in the cafe drinking a milkshake, mm. and, like, you know, this idea of, like, okay, now we have to appreciate the things that are important while we can, 
because we don't have we only have five years to appreciate things and to be connected to one another and so i thought that was interesting yeah. it also breaks the fourth wall which is cool you didn't i don't think you knew you were in this song is yes. one of the lines and so it's the singer referring to the song that they're actively singing which is interesting and the singer in this song is presumably random human number two yeah well, number one, I guess. Is or potentially a future disciple of Ziggy. Like, we don't know. It's just, we don't know, but within the song itself, it doesn't really matter. For all intents and purposes, it could be any human. Yeah. What do you make of the line, a cop knelt and kissed the feet of a priest, and a queer throw up at the sight of that? I don't know. I kind of, I thought that one was weird, too. That's a really weird line. And the only thing I can think is that, like, the cop and the priest are both symbols of large power structures and like maybe that's institutional governmental authority kind of bowing to spiritual authority and then maybe the queer person being upset and disgusted and concerned about that because if the highest authority is the priest that's a group that's historically been really antagonistic to homosexual people and trans people. I don't know. Not like the police. Well, yeah, the <laughs> police aren't great either, but it's at least not like explicit in their codes in the same way, the it, bias. So It's a little hard to disentangle our current situation with police and priests mm-hmm. to think about how this would have been in the 70s. Yeah. But we're talking about early 70s, UK, I mean... Gay bashing was a thing. I think 1956 was when homosexuality stopped being literally illegal in the UK. Mm -hmm. Is that right? Yeah. So I don't know. It could just be sort of generally a breakdown of the status quo. Yeah. Because you've got images of priests kissing people's feet and washing feet. Is that a thing? Yeah. Well, I think that's the whole... I think Jesus washed the feet of his disciples. Yeah. And dried them with his hair. Mm. And, like, kissing the feet of, like, gods and, and prophets, I think, I think is a thing. Yeah. So it's definitely religious symbolism. But yeah, that line is very confusing. As far as um, just generally how the song goes with, like, this sort of breakdown, I think it's nice because it opens up with a fairly steady beat. Yeah. And a fairly, like, smooth rhythm and harmony to it. And then just steadily becomes more discordant and cacophonous as it gets mm-hmm. on to the point when the final lines of the song are being yelled, really. Yeah, I actually, like, my, my musical notes for this is, like, the tone of it is very melancholy, but then by the end it's, like, the singer is screaming and wailing Yeah. at the end of the song, and it's it's that freaking out you're hearing it in the voice of the singer like as the gravity of the situation is really hitting you know them yeah one thing i do think is interesting about five years is that it's very unclear as to why the earth is dying like what is going to happen in five years or over the course of five years and i wonder if it's intentionally vague for the longevity of the song perhaps so it could be like any potential crisis but if it's five years, like, that's so concrete of a time frame that it has to be some sort of process that's ongoing that has, like, a timeline you can anticipate. 
I've got one possible theory for why it's not mentioned mm-hmm. that I'll get into later, but within the song and the main story, I feel as though in the 1970s, with everything that was going on between Korea and Vietnam, you've got the Cold War going on, nuclear annihilation is sitting on the cards, there's an extent to which you don't need to tell the audience why the Earth is falling apart. Mm-hmm. Like, it would be the same thing today if you said in five years the seas will be boiling and you know everything will be on fire people aren't going to go well why everyone's just sort of aware that there's this cataclysmic event on the horizon i disagree with you because the events you're talking about like nuclear war that is a thing that could happen suddenly it could happen tomorrow as easily as in five years when you say that something is five years out and it's definite to me, that means that something is underway. Something is, there's a comet coming to hit the Earth. It's five years away, and there's nothing we can do to divert it in that time. There's some sort of, well, one of the things that I saw, like I think it's the Library of Congress uh, summary of the album, says that it's a resource shortage. Like that's a thing you can calculate, like based on our consumption levels or in our consumption level trends. We're going to run out of, and what we have left, we're going to run out of resources in five years and no longer be able to inhabit this planet. It won't be habitable anymore. We'll be doomed. You know, um, climate change. That's There are a lot of timelines on that, like in certain periods of time with certain, lo- you know, certain actions that we're taking, these are benchmarks we'll hit that will make the Earth less and less habitable for us and all that kind of stuff. So, or there's, you know, geologic stuff going on that in five years there'll be you know, a super volcano or something. Like, you know what I mean? I don't feel as though with it, like, Library of Congress, whatever they say, I don't feel that within the album itself there's anything to suggest a resource shortage. I agree. Such. I agree. Um, It could be, like, global warming could be one of the specters that's there. I mean, a couple of weeks ago we talked about Left Hand Darkness that was written three years before, and they're very much talking about the greenhouse effect in that. Um, it certainly was in the public consciousness even then. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet we're still not doing much better. Yeah, and that's <laughs> around the same time. I think that the concrete nature of five years is probably a convenience of storytelling. Mm. But also, if you look at a lot of the... like, There's been some discussion from Gen Xers more recently and sort of talking about how they didn't think they were ever going to make it to 65. Their retirement plan was that nuclear war would happen at some point because mm-hmm. that's what they were raised to believe. So it's a generation where there is just this entire sense of impending doom. Mm-hmm. No, nothing matters because in a certain amount of time we won't be here. Yeah. So I, I see your point that like the concrete timeline might suggest something more resolute. The fact that it doesn't include what it is, I think, is just allowing it to be what the audience... Mm -hmm. is already worrying about yeah well that's what i was saying before about intentionally vague for the longevity of the song right but i I mean like the audience at the time that he's writing for um yeah i mean longevity could be an aspect but i think that partially it's not there because it doesn't need to be Mm -hmm. for people to know what the concerns are Mm -hmm. and when you're working in the scope of a song and you have so little space to work with Mm -hmm. if you can save some lines by not saying oh by the way guys there's a cold Mm -hmm. war going on Mm -hmm. or have you heard about global warming Mm-hmm. I could see David Bowie writing a song that included the words, have you heard about global warming? But <laughs> he he didn't, to my knowledge. I'm going to be honest, I've not listened to everything David Bowie wrote because he wrote a lot. 
I don't know if I even have, but I've probably listened to yeah more of it than you have. So. Well, you haven't listened to everything he wrote because they haven't released a lot. That's yet. true. No one, well, the, presumably the people who mixed and like did all that stuff. But anyway, maybe he did it like the pyramids and they're buried within the archives. <laughs> An underground bunker for the people. The people can only come out at the same time as the work they mixed is released. It's going to be a weird like colony of Bowieites, mm. the children of those who mixed. Mm. That album that he's got coming out 200 years from now is going to be really awkward. Anyway. I didn't really have anything else to say about five years. I think we said plenty already. Yeah. Next one is Soul Love, which is surprisingly earwormy. Yeah. Like, I, we were talking about this before we recorded, not today, but like a couple of days ago, that it keep we keep having it in our heads, but if you had asked us before we started listening to the album like what tracks were on it, we would have forgotten that one or it would have taken a really long time to remember that Soul Love was even on this album or even remember what song it is. I don't think I would I don't think I knew the name until I looked at it for yeah. the research. Exactly. But it keeps being stuck in our heads. It's like and I think part of that is because it's got this simple almost plotting but also somehow peppy like rhythm that has some like more unsettled tones over it that disrupt disrupt it from just being peppy so it's this interesting mix of rhythmic and discordant yeah it it does have in the same way as five years starts off more regular and then loses track Mm -hmm. loses track isn't the best way of putting it but it does become more disorganized and discordant like you get Mm -hmm. more awkward notes in there and it's interesting that it goes back to the more standard and then so just when, as it's put together as a concept album, it could have just moved from the discordant five years into a discordant soul love. Mm-hmm. So I sort of wonder whether it's because it's showing the same period of time. Mm-hmm. Like it's that same people coming to terms with it. It's whistle at the start yeah. of the song. So they're sort of parallel to each other rather than one after the other. And that's kind of how I saw it. Like I felt like, I in a timeline that I put together of the songs, there's like the prediction of doom, and then there's like the first contact with Ziggy Stardust, and I think Soul Dust is in between. It's like part of that transition. Soul Love. Yeah. What did I say? Soul Dust. Soul Soul Love is part of that transition. It's people, as you say, kind of trying to come to terms with it, but also feeling very beaten down and disillusioned and having a hard time valuing things that they valued before, particularly love. Because I feel like the biggest takeaway I get from Soul Love is that love won't save us. There's this prediction of doom and just having love for each other and things is not enough to do anything about it. I think I disagree. I think it's more about how people have lost love and lost faith. Uh And where there still is love, it's being looked down upon. Mm. because you have it opens with stone love and the mother like mourning her son Mm -hmm. who's died in some pointless war Mm -hmm. fighting for a slogan which is this period of proxy wars everywhere so i completely understand that reading then you have soul love where you've got the priest who's thinking of god and is reaching up my loneliness of old by the blindness that surrounds him and sort of get this idea that he's feels lost and like it's not really there but then to counteract that in the middle you've got the new love which is sort of a couple of teenagers who are you know experiencing that first strong like oh this is amazing sort of love 
if that makes sense. Right, but I think all of them are kind of put down in the song, including the new love. This is talking about idiocy, basically. What was the line? Um, right, but the, the perspectives are that you've got these two types, like you've got the stone love and the soul love are sort of lost, mm-hmm. whereas the new love is looked down upon, but it's there and powerful. I don't know. I think that it was saying... Um, you know, idiot love will spark the fusion. All I have is my love of love and love is not loving. And what I feel like that's a commentary on is that passive love is useless. It has no concrete effect on the world or even other people. Like that just loving something passively is is worthless. It's loving is an active thing. And you can't just love something. You also have to actively do things that show that and to and that further the interest of the love, I guess. Does that make sense? I I can see what you mean. I think part of the question is who's speaking. Mm -hmm. And I think we're also still in the narrative part where the problem is being stated. Mm -hmm. So I think there's an extent to which you've got a human point of view Mm-hmm. and expressing it, but I think that maybe we were intended to disagree with it to an extent. I know. I think this is like a condemnation of thoughts and prayers. I think this is like this apathetic response to the doom that's like, well, there's nothing we can do about it. We have five years and somebody else going like, you know, well, we have each other and we can, you know, love. And it's like, no, that doesn't, it's pointless. Love is careless and it's choosing passes over cross and baby. It's just like, no, just loving things still lets people die. It doesn't do anything to save anyone. Yeah. I think this song is kind of angry, like low key angry. Yeah, there is an extent to that in the music as well. I think that's why it gets mm. kind of disorganized and discordant at the end. It's like, it's frustrated. What do you make the line, um, just to touch the flaming doves? I don't know. Sorry. What do you make of it? Well, I think that probably supports your theory of anger. Idiot love will spark the fusion. Inspirations have I none, just to touch the flaming dove. Mm. I don't know. I mean, it could be an indication of like, the narrator being somewhat jealous of the love that other people have and are expressing because they don't have people that they love in their life. They have their own inspiration and I guess like their own interests and needs, but not anything like things that consume them, passions that consume them, but not people that consume them in the same way as like the new love or the mother who's consumed by grief or the priest that's consumed by like searching his faith for meaning. Hmm. Let's move on and see if it makes more sense in the context of everything. Okay. Okay, so next up is Moon Age Daydream. Which is one of my favorite songs on this album. I have the note, Enter Ziggy. Yeah, this is definitely when Ziggy comes to Earth. And I do think that there's some argument for this having multiple perspectives. I've told you this before, but I think that the verses are from the alien's point of view. And his, particularly his struggle to find the right words to communicate with humans. Like he he has he has a somewhat disorganized vocabulary, I think. And that is how I read some of the superficially nonsensical mm. lyrics as like this struggle from this like database of words that you have without a real cultural context or fluency or experience using the language to get your point across in a completely different environment. And so, like, when he says, I'm the space invader, he's trying to say, I come from outer space, and I don't belong here, but he is 
accidentally used a term with a more aggressive connotation than he maybe meant. Things like, keep your mouth shut, you're squawking like a pink monkey bird. I think he's trying to get the human to, like, stop freaking out or just keep it a secret that he's there, one of those. And the squawking like a pink monkey bird, like, he knows a bird is a thing that chatters and is describing the human as, like, a pink monkey because we're monkey-like and white people are sort of pinkish. And that's what most of Britain is composed of. Um, Which is obviously where aliens would land. I mean, well, it's where this one seems to have landed. And then I'm busting up my brains for the words is him even reflecting on, like, I'm having a really hard time communicating with you. I'm trying to think of the right words, but it's all sort of jumbled in my head. It's like I've just got this language ported straight into my brain, and I'm kind of sorting through it as I'm trying to talk to you. Yeah. So I thought that was kind of a, a really cool storytelling device. Yeah, that's it's um, interestingly done. That was really deep of me. Hmm. What advice would you give to someone who aspired to be an alligator or mama papa coming for you? Do they need to update their lexicon? <laughs> Burn. I don't like. I I think that that really. I don't think that's a fair question because I think that's somebody reaching into a grab bag of human words <laughs> to try and explain who they are with very limited amount of options. Their entire discussion from language dice where you roll things. And yeah. I'm a alligator. I mean, maybe maybe he's a reptilian alien type of creature inherently. I don't know. Who knows? And that was like the closest word. Or maybe a commentary on how ancient of a life form he is because alligators have been largely unchanged for like thousands of years. Like... It could mean so many things. I think you might be overthinking it with that one. <laughs> well, maybe. I'm just saying, like, I don't think that he, he's necessarily an alligator or a mama-papa coming for you. I think he's confused. Well, actually, I, I feel that the mama-papa is really indicating the androgyny of the feature the character. That... You know, I think that that's a valid reading. I'll, I interpreted it as more of a protective commentary, like that he was coming to protect or, like, guide like parents do in our society and in our species, like an indication of that, and which the androgyny would work for because he's coming in this non-specific gendered parental role to guide us through this crisis. Yeah. I intended that to be a joke, and then I was like, wait, as as I said it, I was like, well, maybe that is what it is. It fits with, it's like the whole pink monkey bird thing. It's like you can kind of see where that thing that superficially sounds nonsense you know, is potentially reaching for a specific meaning Yeah, that you can kind of find. I think that we start to see, like, the critique of celebrity coming in here as well, because you have, like, Ziggy come down and immediately starts being worshipped. Unclear. But, like, you have the phrase, the Church of Man is such a holy place to be. I think that's from Ziggy's perspective. Right. Like, being so odd at being on Earth mm. with humans. And maybe still not necessarily communicating well. But I think that's Ziggy being, like, super excited and happy about meeting humans and being exposed to that new... Maybe. I mean, there's the phrase, um, make me know you really care, Mm -hmm. which is much more sort of commanding and direct. Mm -hmm. Like, it's something much more you can see someone on stage screaming at the crowd or something. Mm -hmm. I don't know, maybe. You said that you think... The verses are Ziggy, which I agree with. And then there's, you were saying that the choruses are people to him? 
I think so. Like that they're meeting Ziggy and being odd and and sort of like infatuated with him. Which I'm not sure about. I'm not sure that it's one person speaking throughout the chorus. There's keep your electric eye on me, babe. It's unclear whether that is people saying, look at me to Ziggy. Mm -hmm. Or if it could be Ziggy saying, talking about like a TV camera. Mm. I feel like the phrase electric eye evokes sort of like 1984 George Orwell style talking about technology. Mm. Where it's not got that quite full understanding on that yet. And then the phrase put your ray gun to my head seems very strange, Mm -hmm. regardless of who's saying it. It is. And that's part of why I think it's humans being in awe of the alien and like starting to worship him already. Yeah. Because they're, you know, there's like this cult like impulse there of, you know, I don't care if I die, I just want to serve you kind of idea. Mm. Um, and just being subservient to the will of this greater being that's come from the heavens and is mysterious and beautiful. Yeah, I think that's fair. And I think that musically it has sort of this triumphant fanfare aspect to the tone. Mixed with these interesting, like, squeaks and, like, these sort of throbbing electronic sounds that are very, I don't know. They're also kind of discordant and, like... Would you describe them as a hazy cosmic jive? Yeah. Yes, I would. (laughs) Sure. Why? Where does that come from? The next song. Oh. We'll get to it in a minute. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, yeah, with that, with Hazy Cosmic Jive, and it's, I think, meant to be alien and ethereal at the same time. Yeah. And kind of evoke this inhumanness of Ziggy. Which are the three best words to describe David Bowie. But also Electric Eye could just be a commentary on Ziggy's eyes, because in Ziggy Stardust, the song, he is described as having screwed up eyes. In case that his eyes are somehow weird and different from human eyes, which is also a comment on David Bowie, who had one damaged pupil that caused his pupils to always be, or most often be, different yeah. levels of dilated. So I, that's also an interesting biographical thing, autobiographical thing. But it could be an indication of Ziggy's appearance. For the longest time, I thought he had um, what's the condition called? Where Heterochromia? You, yeah, where you actually have different colored eyes, but no. It's an illusion. Something about the people being expanded like that side by side to the other one makes you think it's a different color, but it's an optical illusion. Yeah. They were both blue. Blue or green? I think blue. But I do feel that um, going back a little bit to the celebrity side of things, mm-hmm. the I'll be a rock and rollin' bitch for you. Mm-hmm. and I'm a mama papa coming for you. Like, he might not know what he's trying to say, mm-hmm. but effectively what he's saying is, I'll be what you need me to be. Yeah. Um, And it's sort of this, that weird sort of celebrity position of, you'll worship me as long as I give you what you need. Mm-hmm. And as um, long as you can project things onto me. Yeah. Do you want to move on to talking about Starman? Sure. Let me turn the lyric book page. So this one, I think, is definitely humans spreading the word of Ziggy Stardust. People have heard him on the radio. They know that he is an alien, but they're not sure that other people they talk to will believe that he's real. And like, they might get committed for talking about, you know, hearing the message of this alien, which is understandable. I can understand being concerned that people might think you're crazy when you start talking about that. Um, It has some sort of culty sounds 
And it's got this very rhythmic toe-tapping, head-nodding type of rhythm to it. Yeah, I think that this one, um, and this ties into something I'll say in a minute, I think that it is the reverse of the first two songs. I think that it opens very discordantly mm-hmm. and then resolves into a more har- harmonious tone. Yeah, I think this one evokes like ideas of the 60s commune and stuff, of like mm. people's kids running off to join communes and their parents trying to drag them back. I mean, we see that in Mad Men like one of the later seasons but that seems to have been like a thing i guess you know people becoming disillusioned with modern life and trying to return to a more idyllic lifestyle that's more community oriented and i think that we're hearing a similar sort of idea of like a culty sort of situation growing up around ziggy stardust and this is like a disciple perspective yeah i think that this is one of the most clear songs as far as story elements go there's the words I can see his light. Like I feel like that's Yeah, you can. Pretty explicit, so <laughs> Was that the meaning of explicit you meant? No. Okay. Well, it worked. Um That was a common problem with his pants. Uh I have a note here and I'm just trying to work out why I wrote the note. Mm-hmm. I'm also trying to work out who spilled coffee on this book. Probably you. Could have been you. Nope, haven't had coffee in days, weeks, a while. Yeah, so, um, like, you have these humans who have heard the message, and it's interesting because, like, they feel they need to go and sort of show their worth for him to come down, as the, if we can sparkle, he may land tonight. Mm. Which could mean that in um, Moon Age Daydream, the co- um, it's more his initial communication rather than his appearance. Mm. If it's an order. Yeah, which I think it is. Mm. Even if you don't. But either way, they seem to be saying to other people, like, that Ziggy Stardust is, like, the person we need to be paying attention to right now. Yeah. Do you understand what I mean about this, like, rhythmic, I don't know, almost like a hypnotic or meditative sound at the beginning and during the hook that's like sort of lulling. Yeah. Um, and I think it sort of plays in with the, of course it's not written in the lyrics, uh, the sort of repetition of the O-O-O sound mm. that gets like slightly chanty yeah. when combined with that background noise. Mm-hmm. I think it combines to make a sort of like reassuring sound overall that makes sense for trying to spread the word and... Yeah. You know, gather followers and convince people to follow this rock and roll messiah from outer space. Ziggy Stardust. Space hippie. Yes. Kind of. But I think that's everything I had to say about... Yeah. Um, we'll probably come back to this one in a little bit when we're doing our overall discussion, because I think mm-hmm. there's a couple of points I'd still like to pull out, but I think it'll make more sense. Yeah. We'll talk about that later. Mm-hmm. Next is It Ain't Easy. Which is interesting because it's actually a cover. Yeah, it's it's a bold move to put someone else's lyrics into the middle of your, your own narrative. <laughs> yeah, which I I think that really the trick is there that he didn't. Mm-hmm. I went and looked up the original lyrics, mm-hmm. and there are enough changes to them that it changes the meaning of the song and sort of recasts it. I think. Okay. Like there's a couple of really key changes. In the original, there's a verse that opens, and all the people, they got their problems, well, that ain't nothing new. Take your patience and understanding, they can get you on through. 
Whereas in Bowie's version, it becomes, well, all the people have got their problems. That ain't nothing new. With the help of the good Lord, we can all pull on through. Yeah. And and I do have a note here, like, is Ziggy the good Lord? Because in the context of this story, he's the, he's this rock and roll messiah. That's, like, the whole point of the story, so. Yeah, I, w- I would say that he is indeed the good Lord in this situation because you've already had this sort of, Going back to soul love, there's this sort of loss of faith mm-hmm. that's kind of been, been put aside. So I think Ziggy is filling that role of God and saviour mm-hmm. to these people. So he has become that good Lord figure. The other really key change, because I mean, there's a lot of like a few words here and there. Right, so here's the other really big one. So in this song that I, I think who is speaking which parts is a little bit interesting. But what I would take as a line from, well, I don't know. There's the line, satisfaction, satisfaction, keep me satisfied. I've got the love of a hoochie-coochie woman. She's calling from inside. In the original by Ron Davis, which we didn't mention who wrote the original, uh, it's been heavily covered. Um, But in the original lyrics, it's satisfaction, satisfaction, tell me who is satisfied. Mm. Well, she, ooh, she take it and she hold it deep inside. Mm. which is a very different song. Yeah. Yeah, I think those are the main lyric changes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the song seems to kind of be talking about it being difficult to get past whatever the apocalypse is, but I'm not sure if the tone is more pessimistic or more determined. And there's definitely an aspect of encouraging people to take enjoyment where they can through the process with the talking about satisfaction and the love of a good woman and stuff. Like, that's kind of what that sounded like to me. But I'm not sure if that's too shallow of a reading. I think that because he's using someone else's words, a shallow reading might be expected. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the key is the refrain of, it's hard to get to heaven when you're going down. Yeah. Um, and it is that struggle. Mm-hmm. I think that the... I think the majority of the song is from the human point of view of, and like, or like at least his pushing on of like, it'll be difficult, but you can make it. Mm -hmm. And then I think there's that keep me satisfied thing, I think is sort of the first sign you get of Ziggy starting to lose it. And starting to get infatuated by like sensual pleasure and things. He's starting to get a little bit egotistical and getting a little bit into hedonism. Mm -hmm. Um... I think I said that it was from the point of view of humans, and I think I meant it's Ziggy talking to the humans. Gotcha. Let me just rearrange it. You can do that in post. No, I won't. No, get the. It'll be fine. Um, yeah, I don't don't think that there's a lot more to say on the words there. It does have that sort of gospel, jazzy blues type vibe to it. Later, like I think it starts with this sort of rhythmic chiming work song rhythm mm. that. Also, I think works with that whole it ain't easy, you know, we kind of have to just like put put our heads down, put our shoulder into it and like move. But then it kind of gets more bluesy and gospel, which works with this whole like worshipful messianic vibe. There's a word I'm looking for. You know, there's like the the big church things in like during the dust bowl. What am I thinking of? Yeah, I know what you mean. I'm not sure what the word is, but I think it's. I have a question mark over that because Bowie isn't American. That's true. That's true. That might be my American background influencing my reading of that. And to be, yeah, like 
he he had travelled by this point and like might have had an awareness of those things. I mean, he he, he did. He toured as Ziggy in in America, and he by which point he would have already written this. Right, but he famously looked at what was going on in other countries and like had American rivals and things. Okay, so. so he probably did have an awareness and might have drawn upon that. But yeah, I mean, I was just suddenly struck that like work songs and gospel music aren't really gospel music in like the American South style of gospel music mm-hmm. isn't a thing in the Britain in the Britain in the Britain in Britain because it's the American South tradition instead. I think as an expert on being in churches, mm-hmm. I'm, I've I've been in many churches. I I love pulpits. Okay. And uh, Naves? Is that a part of a church? It is. It is a part of a church. Steeples. <laughs> Just you naming parts of churches. Love me some steeples. Yeah. What's up? Just trying to see if I can find the word that I was looking for. Revival. That's the word I was looking for. But um, that's not... I didn't actually find it looking with. Yeah. But that sort of revival sound is the word I was looking yeah. for. Yeah. That makes sense. And cut that in earlier. Mm-hmm. This is it. You correct all your own mistakes during editing and just leave me looking like an idiot. I should really listen back to these. I probably sound like a complete buffoon. I mean, I can do that if you want to. Um, I, mean... I usually try to show the journey. There we go. But yeah, so there's definitely a working class atmosphere, though, to the music. And I think that whether the influences are American or British is a material, I feel like that sound comes through very clearly. Yeah. I think that's pretty much all I wanted to say about it ain't easy. Sure. Okay, so let's move on to Lady Stardust. That one opens with a sound that reminds me of Live and Let Die, and also has a lot of musical themes that just sound... It, it reminds me a lot of the Beatles and Elton John, and like this sort of longing combination of vocal and piano. How did Live and Let Die be written at this point? I'm not sure. No. So I guess they... May have been influenced by this song. Uh, Live and Let Die, uh, well, the film was released in 1973. And the song was released with it, so yeah. Probably all in, all just on the same influences at that point. Mm-hmm. This one is interesting to me within the narrative flow, because I think that it's almost an intermission. It's an interesting view of Ziggy, but narratively, if you just take it out of the album, I don't think it changes the story. I think this is a picture of Ziggy Stardust as he's starting to become a rock star. People are being very fascinated by Ziggy. He's a very and a compelling performer and also described as very androgynous. And I think that those are this is painting a picture of Ziggy on his rise. Yeah. Singing songs of darkness and dismay, apparently. Like Lady Stardust, I want to be clear, is Ziggy Stardust. Yes. Um, and I think that there's some like interesting things going on talking about gender in here. Oh, definitely. Um, because we exclusively talk about Christmas things and things with weird gender going on. Or toxic masculinity. So that's the trifecta. Trauma. Trauma. Mm-hmm. Oh, trauma's in everything. That's true. Oh my god, did I just... Where are my notes? Ah! Okay, I found them. Okay. <laughs> You're gonna leave that in, aren't you? God damn it. I might put it in the blooper reel. Ah... <sighs> Like, you have Lady Stardust, and then you have male pronouns. Mm-hmm. And descriptions of Ziggy or of Lady Stardust as a boy. The boy in the bright blue jeans. But with long dark hair and makeup. 
Which neither of those things are defined femininity but um as a recent meme asserts all clothes are gender neutral if you stop being a little bitch about it yeah he's also called a creature his animal grace Mm -hmm. so i feel like this one is painting a picture of ziggy and like the gender ambiguousness of the alien and also the compelling and attractive nature of this alien messiah yeah you have the really quite paradise and he was awful nice bits. And there's the, I smiled sadly for a love I could not obey. Yeah, that line really stood out to me too. So this song, as part of Ziggy Stardust, is like this person like staring at Ziggy and being like, wow, that thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't really know how to characterize this figure, but I know I'm kind of in love with it. <laughs> I'm having some mighty complicated feelings. Yes. It's also in, in interesting because, like, the point of view, human, presumably, of the song is um, standing there admiring Lady Stardust. Mm-hmm. But that's clearly not the opinion of everyone. And, like, people aren't really sure what to do with this person that seems androgynous or omnisexual or whatever the term is at the time. Mm-hmm. If I would stop reading the wrong lyrics, this would be much easier. I was wondering if this is, like, an audience person or a bandmate. It could go either way, but there's the people stared at the makeup on his face, laughed at his long black hair. Mm-hmm. So, like, it is unusual. People don't necessarily know what to do with it. Yeah, and some people are judgmental and other people are fascinated. Yeah. Do you hear what I mean with the, like, Elton John type of sound to this song? I feel that Elton John's sound might be as useful a descriptor as the David Bowie sound. Mm. Like I don't really like which Elton John song are you think it's it reminds me of like some of his slower, more melancholy piano yeah. heavy songs, like the sort of romantic and longing ballady type songs that Elton John has. It's yeah. the similar sort of longing conveyed through voice and piano that Elton John does in a lot of his slower songs. Candle in the wind. Maybe. Yeah, no, I I can see what you mean there. Um, and they I, were contemporaries. So. Yeah, there is the that longingness to it. So. I don't think I have anything else to say. Okay. Although his songs of darkness and dismay might be somewhat about like the plight of the earth, or maybe similar struggles that he's aware of from other worlds. I don't know. Hmm. Yeah. Somehow he saves the world, though. Somehow. Okay, so I think that we've now got the easiest song to talk about coming up, which is Star. Oh yeah, that one's clearly a commentary on kind of celebrity and the aspiration of stardom as a way to change the world and make money. Like, this is a career path that's exciting and lucrative and gives you a chance to make your stamp on the world. Yeah, yeah. it's it's all the people that went tried to do things to change the world. Tony went to fight in Belfast, really stayed at home to starve, mm-hmm. and then... I can make it all worthwhile as a rock and roll style. Like it's the that's how they do things. Oh, and also you make money. That's nice mm-hmm. too. And there's the line like play the part in there, and I think that is interesting in the context of the way that David Bowie talks about the persona of Ziggy Stardust and other personas that he assumed throughout mm. his career, because he did talk about all of these personas as playing a part, but also as parts that he played that he kind of got too wrapped up in 
to an extent that it sort of infected other parts of his life and became hard for him to disentangle his own identity from. So I thought that just in the larger meta context is interesting yeah. as a line. And musically, I think it all, it's very coherent because it sort of has this ramping up sound. It starts out with like building tension and then sort of breaks. And there's like echoes of the rise, the rise of an artist and like cre- of creative pursuits where like you sort of have these building moments and you have sort of have these points where something breaks through and then you have other points where it kind of stops and then you have to kind of build back up again does that make sense yeah yes yeah you're like trying to get some name recognition out there trying to book gigs or trying to send out stories or whatever you're doing and then like maybe something breaks through and it's like yay we've made some progress and then like there's kind of nothing and you're kind of have to keep going and keep going yeah I think it's interesting as far as something to be written in the early 70s talking about celebrity in this way. Because mm. it's this it's saying, you know, like, the, the best plat- platform, the way to make change is now as a rock and roll star. And, I mean, you started to see at this point, like, the Beatles are being asked their opinions on things and mm. are able to advocate for social change to some degree. I mean, John Lennon and then Yoko Ono's gone on to do a lot of stuff with that. Um, and obviously the McCartney's as well. But you're sort of, I feel, at the start of that, like you might have seen some of it in like the 30s as movies come on, but now we're looking at it at a point when like Kim Kardashian can go and talk to the president and get people pardoned. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got major film actors going out and talking and advocating for climate change. You've got Colin Kaepernick making suddenly a powerful statement, regardless of what people can say about him. Mm-hmm. Like, I think it's probably sort of at the peak of that shift into us mm-hmm. starting to view celebrity in a different way. And giving celebrities a platform to right. promote issues that are important to them on a global scale, not even just in their own country. I think it's an insightful commentary because the people that we traditionally think of as having a lot of power to change things are like politicians, but usually the scope of their influence is limited to the sphere of their control and the sphere of their like job description basically their jurisdiction it's less of that's less true of celebrities because their work has a global audience and they tour a lot of the time and media coverage is international so and i think you're right this is the point where that was really becoming a thing yeah and they don't have the same accountability as politicians either it's like their creator they make what they want to make and people consume it or don't consume it so that people don't have the same kind of expectation of accountability as far as specific actions that they... I mean, I guess that's not always true, but, you know, not quite the same as, like, a politician that's elected to serve particular interests. I think that we're getting to an interesting point where, like, celebrities are almost being elected to represent views Mm. because, like, people become famous from the support of their fans and then they'll often start talking about things like this and then you'll get people who boycott stars that they disagree with, mm-hmm. which then reduces their popularity. And, I mean, they're the celebrities of the people who can go and talk to politicians and can go and walk into walk up to the president and say, you should do this. Mm-hmm. And they become a sort of voice for the people that's quasi-elected. It's an interesting time to be alive. Yeah. I think the last thing I wanted to say with this was that it was just an interesting... Parallel Andrew Lloyd Webber's musical Jesus Christ Superstar, mm-hmm. which is sort of looking at Jesus as this messianic figure 
if he was treated like a celebrity. Mm. Um, and you get like towards the end of the musical, there's a point when he's being sort of quizzed by reporters mm -hmm. about like, why did you do it this way? You know, did this play really work for you mm -hmm. sort of thing? And Judas gets this sort of like monologue song at the end to just sort of like taunt him a little bit. And one of the questions is, um, why did you sort of come here and now? And like Israel in 4 BC has no mass communication. Mm. Um, so like, it's interesting as a updating a messiah mm -hmm. to a point when they can use electric eyes and such. But, mm. Okay, I think that's probably everything on that. So next we have Hang On To Yourself, which I think is a song about the band kind of taking off, like the Spiders From Mars sort of gaining traction, with Ziggy as their frontman, and starting to attract groupies, and Ziggy getting distracted by the groupies, and like this, you know, the whole song has a sort of fun party sound, it's kind of cocky, has a sort of dance beat, um, seems to sort of be the point of view of Ziggy and the bandmates sort of separately, to me, anyway. I think it's probably not, like, them just taking off. I think it's probably, like, slightly further down the road. Like, when they're at the peak? Like, when they're very successful? Yeah, they're successful and now things are at risk. There's something at risk. Mm -hmm. um, I'd say that it, rather than a punk party sound, I'd say it always has kind of a punk sound to it. A little bit, yeah. I, I would agree. It's, like, it, it has that cocky sound to it. Yeah. Um, and I think it, like, it almost has, like, I, I've not done the math on... It and going checked, but like it, you know that sort of four chord song sound. Maybe it's the easy, easily to be successful with it one because it's just a catchy tune. Mm -hmm. Like I don't think it's a complex song, which I guess I said when I said it was a punk song. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe a little bit, but I definitely think it's meant to sort of show that Ziggy is starting to get sidetracked by, like you were saying before, the hedonism of the superstar role. You know, just kind of obsessed with conquest and sex and things yeah and i think that the point of view is the spiders from mars mm. like the backing band and they're they're happy that they're successful but they're they sort of see the fragility of it yeah and they're concerned that like they recognize that that they're the backing band and it's mm -hmm. become ziggy and the band mm -hmm. like they're they're bitter about it there's the whole like the bit of it comes out better on a stolen guitar but they perhaps recognize that, like, beyond the actual playing, they don't have the same talent as Ziggy. Because mm. there's, like, the we can't, we can't dance, don't talk much, just ball and play. And then there's the, like, very, I think, sort of on-the-nose reference to, like, Messiah and Disciples thing, when there's the line, you're the blessed, we're the spiders from Mars. Mm -hmm. I feel like it's almost, we're just the spiders from Mars at that point. Yeah. Kind of like... You're starting to see the jealousy come through a little that really shows up in Ziggy Stardust, the song, which is next. Yeah. I just noticed that uh, you referenced back in um, Ziggy Stardust. You no, mean Lady Stardust? No, the first song I see was called Moon Age Daydream. Mm. You mentioned back in uh, Moon Age Daydream that they talk about seeing his light. Mm -hmm. And then in this one, it's uh, the line is that they're coming to the show tonight praying to the light machine. Mm. Yeah, and so was, you're definitely seeing this picture of these beyond adoring fans. There is a, a cult-like following that's sprung up around this band, and particularly their frontman. He's become this icon, and he's becoming increasingly corrupted by that attention, it seems like, and the availability 
of humans willing to just do anything to be close to him. I definitely think that this song talks about how wrapped up in the fandom and the the lust of that experience that Ziggy is getting, you know? He's losing sight of the creative mission in those perks. Just the way you said fandom, just like fandom's taking on a different meaning now. Yeah. And just like amused like Z- Ziggy Stardust like fanfics. There are Ziggy Stardust fanfics, aren't there? I'm sure there are. Uh, There's probably... This is what he warned us about. There's probably a slash fic out there between each of David Bowie's personas. And we'll link to them in the show notes. No, we won't, because we're not going to go down the rabbit hole to even find them. But you feel free. And uh, when you find them, don't tell us about them. Yeah. Anyway... So, like, it's interesting because it's got this fun, upbeat sound, but it's actually very foreboding. Not foreboding. It's, but it's actually foreshadowing a lot of the downfall to come and a lot yeah. of the, the negative things that are building out at the same time, you know? Yeah. I think that's, I mean, it's a pretty cut and dried song, though. Yeah. Okay. And then the song that, if you don't know any other songs from this album, you probably know this one. The semi-titular song, Ziggy Stardust. I feel like it's either this one or Moon Age Daydream. Yeah, probably. Or Suffragette City. I think Suffragette City might be a slightly less known. Is it? Like, I think it's that if you have a greatest hits album, it probably includes Suffragette City. But if mm-hmm. you know three David Bowie songs, I don't think Suffragette City's one of them. Maybe. I feel like Let's Dance is probably one of the ones that most people know. It gets more radio play these days, I think. Life on Mars? Not as much on the radio. Uh, Space Oddity. Yeah, Space Oddity definitely is a big one that a lot of people know. Anyway. Fame. Yeah, fame. He has a lot of greatest hits. Under pressure. Oh no. If we're counting collabs. Um, that's really the big one that people know of him, though. Yeah. Anyway, Ziggy Stardust is, I think, the Nelson one that... in the streets. Oh my god. <laughs> we could do this forever. He was very prolific. But this one, I feel like, is the most self-contained story within the album. Right. Like, this song itself tells a a short story. And this is where we start arguing, right? Yes, I think so. Because this one, I think we agree, is the eulogy of the band of Ziggy, in one way or another. Yes, it's certainly a eulogy. They're talking about who he was. Yes. As a star, as a bandmate... As a sex icon. What sex symbol? That's the word. A sex icon. Is that like you have a little shrine and you have your icons? That's just... And they're just all hot people? I don't know. Um, no. Just David Bowie in his labyrinth pants? Yeah. Okay. But yeah, talking about like... It's a candle. Who he was. At, yes, you have to be able to see the light. Oh my god, really? Um, you can cut that. <laughs> okay. But anyway, like he's talking about how great of a performer he was. And how jealous they were also. Um, It's a snapshot of what was going on at the peak of their fame. And also them sort of talking about his downfall, but in kind of vague terms. They're very clear that he was essential to the band's success and they were jealous. Yeah. Which, I mean, coming straight off of the previous song makes a lot of sense. Mm Mm-hmm. They use past tense to talk about Ziggy consistently and say the kids had killed the man. Like, when the kids had killed the man, I had to break up the band. Which, to me, is pretty clear that Ziggy died somehow 
And also that he was so essential to their success, they couldn't go on without him as their front man. I think that there's a, especially when you look at the rest of the album, taking the song as itself, I can see your point of view of The Kids Killed the Man. Mm -hmm. But I think within the album as a whole, like, there's a fairly solid argument for that being metaphorical killed the man he was. Mm. Um, Like, the kids being those fans that distracted him from what he was supposed to be focused on. Mm. Um, And that it's, to them, the person they knew is gone. Mm -hmm. They became sort of a victim of his own success and lost sight of the creative vision in, you know, just the, the hedonistic exploits. Yeah. Which, it's an interesting song for Bowie to have written about his own persona. Yeah. Both from the point of view of, like, he got kind of carried away and it stopped being about the music and started being about the fans. And and also from the point of view of, like, he just wrote a song about how well hung he was <laughs> and, that, and ha- how he had God-given ass. And... <laughs> I mean, I suppose you have to be mildly narcissistic to be successful as a celebrity, but still, it seems like new ground. (laughs) If there's weird jingling on this recording, it's because one of my cats is sitting in my lap. Misty is insisting on pets right now, so... She has a collar. Yeah. It definitely follows through on this, like, eulogy atmosphere with the music. Like, there are these drum beats. It's like a, like the drum rolls at a funeral, and they sort of fade out at the end. You know, like, when military give a tribute at a funeral yeah. and things, and, like, there's this sort of slow... There's a slow progression with a sort of wailing sound in the background during lots of it. The vocals are very sad and wistful. And even the... The vocals start with a sigh before the lyrics even come in. Well, it's like it's an, interesting. Oh yeah, first and then a sigh. Yeah. Which I thought was interesting. Yeah, it, it's all very sad and sounds very guilty, and it reminds me of the stories people tell at like a wake. Yeah. You know, where you you're trying to tell stories that they're not even always stories that cast the dead in a positive light, but they make people laugh and they remind people of who that person was. Yeah. And I think that's part of why they're including their jealousy and, like, some of the fights that they had or allude to some of the fights that they had. And it's like, yeah, you know, we we got really jealous and we talked about crushing his hands that one time. Like, things got kind of messed up there for a while, but he was a great guy. Like, you know, so beautiful in all of these very specific ways. <laughs> like... Yeah, and I also feel like they are, they're very guilty and can't let go of or ignore the bad stuff or the jealousy and are sort of incriminating themselves. Like, they don't want to pretend that didn't happen, or they can't pretend that didn't happen, which is yeah. interesting. So, even though they're also kind of indicting him for the way he upstaged them. Yeah, and, like, it does seem as though they feel like maybe they should have done more to support him. Mm-hmm. There's the whole where were the spiders bit. Yeah. There's sort of... Just the beer, like, to guide us? I don't know. I felt like the, but where were the spiders was them talking about how they felt, like, how they felt sidelined and ignored and yeah. upstaged by yeah. Ziggy Stardust. And like, that. Yeah. So, really the upstaging. It was like, this became all about him, and we felt kind of, like, you know, invisible next to his light, you know? Yeah. There's the sort of reputation of the kids. The kids was just crass, but he, he was the Naz. Mm-hmm. It was slang in the seventies of like awesome. I think okay. it's like he like really cool, the best. Yeah, um, sick. 
So the kid's his fans? I think so. Yeah. Which is interesting because, okay, supposedly there's a whole lot of, like, I don't know, semi-apocryphal filling in of this story by David Bowie in interviews and by people who were involved in putting together the movie and all that sorts of stuff. Because there was a Rise and Fall of Ziggy Stardust movie. And supposedly Ziggy Stardust is torn apart by other aliens who use the body he constructed to be corporeal on Earth or something. Very weird and sci-fi-y like that. Partially also because he got carried away and, like, sort of got off mission or whatever. Yeah. So, and they're they're the infinites who do this. Other aliens who come down and tear Ziggy apart on stage during a performance. Pretty gruesome sounding. But, so, the kids might also be the infinites. But I don't know that that really works. Like, I feel like that's something other people have said after the fact in trying to flesh out this story. But in terms of what's actually in this album, I do not see it. Yeah. I I stand by the fact that within the context of just the album, nothing else, not taking Apocrypha that Bowie invented afterwards and the people have tried to make sense of and not taking in the movie because we're doing the album. I I think there's a compelling argument that he doesn't die. That it's just him becoming a victim of his own success and... Ceasing to really be the person everyone kind of fell in love with and was obsessed with. Well, like, and also with Ziggy Stardust being a persona, Uh like, if you could take it as Ziggy Stardust took it too far, Uh and Ziggy Stardust died leaving David Bowie, for example. Leaving Aladdin sane. There's some really interesting meta stuff with the personas and things, because David Bowie talked about the Ziggy Stardust persona in particular being a thing he got, like, really wrapped up in mentally and that he said, like, he's really lucky that he survived that with his own personality intact and was harassed by the persona after he kind of didn't want to be it anymore or didn't really want to put have it on, partially because he was like, oh, why just do this on stage? Why not bring Ziggy to interviews and stuff? But it kind of took over his life for a while, and so supposedly he invented a new persona to kind of take away the old to get past the old persona and went into the Aladdin sane period which was actually more chaotic and more off the rails why are there so many snakes well, we brought them in to get rid of the frogs but it sort of reminds me of like the way you kind of have to titrate off of a, an antidepressant medication with a different one unless you want to go through horrible withdrawals like it feels like he did that but then he got on one that had worse vices attached to it. I was going to say, I don't know much about the Aladdin Sane persona, but from the things you've hinted at, it sounds like he was titrating off his antidepressant by using heroin instead. Well, he was, I guess, trying to take off this bisexual, sex-crazed persona by jumping into a drugs-fueled persona instead. Oh, so he was using heroin instead. Yeah. Okay. It might not have been heroin, I don't remember. but, But in terms of a commentary on like what you're talking about in terms of this this celebrity persona that persona did die or at least was sort of sloughed off in a weird way by bowie in a very intentional but also it seems kind of painful mentally way yeah like the he took it all too far i do think that is bowie like commenting on himself with that persona trying to sneak some words out without ziggy noticing yeah it's a cry for help of david bowie trapped inside the ziggy stardust persona okay that's it that's that's Unrambling's canon now, that's our opinion. Yeah. Okay. Suffragette City? Yes, Suffragette City. So here we really start to break in our interpretation, like, between the two of us. 
I think this is a jump back in the timeline, reflecting on Ziggy's distraction by groupies and sexual con- conquests and being distant and dismissive of his bandmates and his his responsibilities as a performer and logistically, you know, and just kind of getting carried away by these shallow physical interests. And I do think the crassness in the lyrics is reflective of that, of him just sort of getting consumed by very shallow pursuits. So I disagree. Yes, I um, did say that at the beginning. I don't think the timeline for this is messed up. I think the songs are largely in chronological order. And I think that this is, they're off giving a eulogy for who he was, mm-hmm. and he's off being who he is now. Mm-hmm. And that's what the problem is. So they're talking about how he's got distracted by fans and has forgotten about the music. And he is off being distracted by fans. Um, like his life has become all about the, the women coming along and all, all, all the enjoyment that he can have with them. And there's people trying to check in on him and be friendly and make sure he's okay. And he's pushing them away mm-hmm. and asking them to leave him alone. And like, there's the verse that I'm going to drop the uh, vocal ticks, but like, Henry, don't be kind, go away. I can't take you this time, no way. Droogie, don't crash here, which is friend. Is mm-hmm. There's only room for one, and here she comes. Mm-hmm. Like, it's... No, I'm not being an asshole, I just need you to leave, because there's a woman coming over. Mm-hmm. And have you heard how great women are? Mm-hmm. Is really what I, I take it as being about. Like, I don't think it's a jump back to him doing this as part of the band. I think that this is what's left of him just fully hedonistic at this point. Okay, I think we agree on what the song is talking about, but just different on which of whether or not that's before or after Ziggy Stardust, and whether or not it's whether he's died and this is after, you know whether he's died and this is before he died or whether he didn't die and this is just him after he's sort of washed up. Yeah, and I think musically there's like this sort of thrumming, single-minded music through it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's like very consistent and regular. In a way, musically, does you, do you know what yeah. I mean? Yeah, um, it's got a lot of drive to it. Yeah, it's I, it's constantly driving forward, but in a very consistent way that to me seems sort of like to echo an idea of tunnel vision. It's almost repetitive as well. Yeah, it is I, repetitive. Well, yeah, <laughs> and you get the sort of call and response mm-hmm. in how the lyrics are structured with the hey man stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that that one's also pretty simple. And even though we disagree on the timeline and the implications of the Ziggy Stardust song, I think we agree on the picture that's being painted in Sucker Death City. So the very last song on the album is Rock and Roll Suicide. Which we agree completely about. Mm, yeah. Yeah. I think that this one has a really lovely musical progression that echoes the story that's being told. This is a similar one to Ziggy Stardust where I think it's telling a story too. Like it's a short contained story on Uh its own as a song and so this one to me sounded like a it starts out with a person who's really depressed and apathetic and experiencing a lot of very classic symptoms of depression like anhedonia and like there's the the line about you don't eat when you've lived too long and like that to me sounded like people who are really deeply depressed sometimes have a hard time eating because they can't enjoy anything and So it starts out with this sort of acoustic sound that's very slow and regular and with very pronounced beats at the start. And as it progresses, a band comes in and like the bass builds along with the refrains of you're not alone. 
which I felt was really beautiful, like a really beautiful interplay musically with the story. So you have this single instrument then being joined by others as someone is saying, you have a support system, you, this depressed person who's lost hope and lost enjoyment of life. Other people have been where you are. I've been where you are. I can help you. You know, I can help you with the pain and just talking this person off a ledge throughout this story until it kind of reaches this crescendo that also pulses, but has a lot more instruments going on and a much more uplifting sound with like a lot of brass. Yeah, it it has that sort of acoustic opening that's very melancholy and then it gets, I feel, more defiant as it goes through. Mm -hmm. It's like, I don't let this beat you. I, you know, I can let me help you beat this. Let me help you get through this point and to a point on the other side. Yeah. So as far as what the song's about, Mm -hmm. as we've teased that we disagree. So, I mean, I feel that it opens on a sort of down and out Ziggy or what's left of Ziggy. Um, who is contemplating suicide, but has this possibility of redemption. Mm-hmm. And if there has been a suicide, then it's been of Ziggy's career or of the persona of Ziggy. And then you've got, I think, one of two things. Either it's, and I think probably more likely, um, Ziggy slash Bowie's friends supporting and going, as you say, you can do this, you're not alone. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of this, maybe it's... Um, I don't think it would ever return to stardom as Ziggy, mm-hmm. but like the what's left of Ziggy can continue on mm-hmm. with this element of redemption. Alternatively, it's a message to humanity in this mm-hmm. in a similar sort of way to the "It Ain't Easy" song mm-hmm. of like it's difficult, but you can do this. You just got to keep going, sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Which would be interesting because this is an alien messiah. The whole like if it's a message world to world then it could be a case of the aliens saying to the Earth and to humans, we've experienced similar crises before on our planet or in other planets. We can help you. Give me your hands. You're wonderful. Give me your hands is like sort of screamed near the end. It's like, no, don't give up at this point. You can get through this. I know because I have, you know. So it could be this like grand metaphor on a world scale between an individual who's depressed and their support system and a world that's depressed and a intergalactic support system that's offering to help. I've got a couple other things to say, but you sort of disagree with me on this song, I think. So what what was your takeaway on it? (sighs) Or do you just disagree with the timeline again? I just disagree with the timeline. I'm actually not sure. Hmm. Have I convinced you? You might have convinced (gasps) me because... Thinking about it, like, I kind of had it listed as one of the songs that makes up this eulogy and farewell, but that only works if Ziggy committed suicide after people were trying to convince him not to, and, like, this powerful thing of, like, you're not alone, you're wonderful, like, and then he just jumps off the bridge or jumps off the stage or something, like... Or if he's then, after he's got to this washed-out point, pulled apart by his fans... Or the Infinites or whoever... Well, the Infinites aren't in the album. Yeah, I know. I We're know. not talking about the Infinites. <laughs> Misty, what the fuck are you doing? We're trying to do a thing. Yeah, sorry for all this random noise I'm sure is behind everything we've been saying for the past 15 minutes or so because Misty keeps playing with the blinds right by us and will not stop. We were 
shut the door and keep them out, keep the cats out of the studio to avoid this sort of thing. But A, they've meowed us, and B, our studio doesn't have a door. So yeah. here we are. Oh, good. She's settling down on a blanket. Why would you say that? Anyway. So you might have convinced me because I don't know that it otherwise... <laughs> no, you can't now play with the box, Shadow. <laughs> you started pouring at the box. Okay, sorry. You might have convinced me. You might have convinced me because I'm not really sure that it makes sense in the story if Ziggy's died or been if he if he's been killed. I guess it. I think that it's still possible that the timeline kind of goes back and forth in the way that I argued before. If at the end of Rock and Roll Suicide, Ziggy kills himself anyway, and if that's how he dies, and then after that, in the timeline would be the song Ziggy Stardust. And, like, this eulogy of he was so great, but we were so jealous, which might explain why they cannot and re- or refuse to erase how guilty they feel and how jealous and shitty they were if they are blaming themselves for him committing suicide and, like, not responding to their offer of support. Like, if they're like, we should have done more, he, you know, wouldn't let us help him because he knew we were jealous of him kind of a thing. I think the problem is, is that if you take... All of these events, literally, then Ziggy dies twice in the album from different causes. And that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. That he's killed slash commits suicide. Yeah. And, I mean, we can say that his career is what gets killed the first time and then he commits suicide. I'm willing to believe that, but, like, just from the tone of the album and the, like, the support that is provided, I don't really buy him killing himself at the end as being... Maybe as far as, like, a... He's done what he came for sort of thing, but that that doesn't ring true for me for a message from Bowie. And track sequencing is the thing where what order people put songs on an album is well thought out. Yeah. I struggle to believe that the album... I mean, there, there could be an argument that some songs might have been rearranged to make for better contrast and drive, but I feel that Bowie probably wrote it as a full thing. And I think if you're having to reorganize the songs to make the story, then maybe you're looking for the wrong story. Maybe. That's my shade for the day. Okay. I think that you could have the time, the timeline be out of order at certain parts so that it highlights different things. Like, that's a storytelling device that happens a lot. Sure. But, I don't know. I do, I think that maybe your interpretation is more supported and probably more compelling. I'm not willing to say unilaterally that it can't be out of order and he can't have died and then be sort of eulogized in different ways because sometimes people do blame someone's suicide on other specific things and so I think if he did commit suicide, mm-hmm. the band might still blame the fans or blame, you know, the kids. And it's like That's a this is one. this is your fault. You killed him. Yeah. It, you know, he wouldn't have done this if it weren't for you. So I don't think that it's outside the realm of possibility. I think it's still a valid interpretation. I'm on the fence about it at this point, though. That, that, that's fair. I do see your point of view. And I'm, I'm not saying that my reading is 100% beyond all. Yeah. Um, and I'm aware that I do tend to look for a more optimistic reading of things. Mm. I think the last thing I want to say about this as a song, before we look at the full thing, is, um, which will probably be a shorter thing, is I think it's interesting that time seems to have agency in this. Hmm. Um, whereas the characters maybe less so, um, because it opens with time takes a cigarette. Oh yeah, you're right. And the clock waits so patiently on your song. Mm. Like there's a sort of a giving of agency to time, mm-hmm. which is I think an interesting closeout to an album that opens with five years. Yeah, that's true. 
you get that sort of bookending of time and this sort of immovability of five years at the start. Mm -hmm. And then at the end, well, you know, whatever. Have a cigarette. Mm -hmm. Time takes a break. Like, if it's time takes a cigarette, I interpret that as like a break, a pause, and which is echoed again by the waiting on your song. Yeah. You know, it's time standing still for Ziggy Stardust, presumably. Yeah. You know, I think that your reading does make more sense with the title of the album, The Rise and Fall of Ziggy Stardust, because if someone is torn apart on stage by the Infinites or the fans or whoever... They they were pushed. They didn't exactly fall so much as they were assassinated or whatever. The Um, rise and demise of Ziggy Stardust. Yeah, that would be a very different thing. Whereas this reading of it being that sort of the death of the career and then the destruction of the man or of the of the idol, really, the destruction of the idol into a more mundane being who's less important in the mass like vision is more of a fall. Yeah. Musically, I do want to talk about like there's just this desperate edge of the latter half of during the talking off the ledge, both in mu- both in the music with the screaming and the, the way that the words are sung slash spoken and this plea to kind of get out of this mental echo chamber and like reach out for the support that's available. It just gets so desperate sounding. I feel like screaming isn't quite the right word for it. It's certainly... For the you're wonderful, give me your hands in particular is sort of screamed. I feel it's more of a yell. Like I feel a scream is asking for help. Mm. Well, I think it's pleading with the... with. The suicidal yeah. person, like, it's the person's about to jump off of the bridge or whatever, and you're, like, screaming, like, you're wonderful, give me your hands. Like, no, like, really trying to convince them that there is value to their existence. The, um, your take of, like, give give me your hands as being a, like, related to a bridge thing is interesting, because I tie it so strongly to the talk about his sweet hands mm. in the earlier song as being, like, a reminder of his musical talent. Mm. But it's interesting. Just a odd note, not really important. But. Mm-hmm. Mm. but yeah, I do. I really like the way that Rock and Roll Suicide is put together. I think yeah. it tells a very complete and coherent story, vocally and musically. It is a um, a very good song. Um, and that's the whole album. That is the whole album. So I've got one thing noted down that is very much talking about the whole album. Mm-hmm. Um, was there anything that you wanted to bring up? No, you can say that. So I think one of the things that's really interesting is something that, going back to older albums, is nice to look at. I talked about Mm -hmm. track sequencing. Yeah. Which I think gets additional stuff, stuff, additional interest to it because this was also released on vinyl. Mm -hmm. Um, In fact, if you look at the track listing on the CD version, it has a split in the middle Mm -hmm. where the vinyl track listing splits. Uh-huh. Um, which means that there's some importance to what's on side A, what's on side B, what's at the end of side A, this sort of thing. Yeah. So I think it's it ends um, side A with It Ain't Easy, uh-huh. which is the cover, but it's about pushing forward and moving on. Uh-huh. It's a fairly sharp song. And I feel like, I think that side A is the story of five years. Okay. And that's, that's the story about the world. Yeah. And then side B, which is Lady Stardust through Rock and Roll Suicide, is the story of Ziggy. Mm. Like, it's it's the rise of Ziggy coming up and saving the world, and then the fall of Ziggy not really having a direction anymore. 
Mm. Well, I don't know about that because Lady Stardust, I think, is the part where Ziggy Stardust is gaining traction as a messiah and as a superstar. Yeah. Um, I mean, I would take that as sort of an intermission, as I think so. So, like, I really, it's tracks one through five are the rise. Track six is up there. There's a man strimming grass in our garden. Cool. Tracks from one through five are the rise and act one. Mm-hmm. And then track six is sort of an intermission. Track six being Lady Stardust. Uh, and then seven through 11 are act two and tell more of the fall. And I think that that's especially interesting because if it parallels then It Ain't Easy and Rock and Roll Suicide to both be the ends of sides. And both of them, I think, have got a message of it's hard, but keep going. Mm-hmm. I think that makes sense. Not sure I quite agree with you on that whole part being the fall of Ziggy Stardust. I think that... Well, maybe I'm just using the title of the album too much, but like, um, it, it's more about Ziggy. It's no longer about the problems of the world. Yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. It's about the, the band's success and Ziggy's success and then waning success and kind of going off the rails-ness. Yeah. I'm I'm trying to be poetic at the cost of accuracy. I'm sorry. Okay. One thing I think that I still am confused about in terms of the story that we're seeing in this album is, again, I don't see a whole lot of clarity on what the problem was in the first place in five years or what the solution or, you know, how Ziggy saved humanity. Like, I don't really understand how all that works. So I have a reading that gives an answer to that. I don't know if you'll find it compelling, but I have one and I like it. So, ha. So as far as the problem goes, I think that, as I say, partially the five years thing, it's not really stated. And I think that's an intentional thing, as I mentioned before. But I think that it's also stated in Soul Love, where there's this sort of the youth and like this new love era idea mm-hmm. is being put down, is mm-hmm. part of the problem. Wait, that new love is the problem or it being put down is the problem? It being put down is the problem. That being like, oh, it's idiot love. Mm-hmm. Whatever. I think that the entire problem is resolved in track four of the album, which is Starman in the chorus. There's the message that he has sent down, his hazy cosmic jive. Mm-hmm. The teenagers that are hearing his message uh, in the chorus say, he told me, let the children lose it, let the children use it, let all the truth children boogie. Mm-hmm. Which, I mean, the the use of the word boogie in there does undercut the deeper meaning, I feel. Mm -hmm. But I think it's saying, like, sort of believe in the youth and, like, empower them and listen to them. Don't put them down and ignore them. The children are the future sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Which I can see you're looking at me Mm skeptically. But I have evidence to support this. Because Mm -hmm. he wrote a song a year before this. Changes. Called Changes, which I should have pulled the quote up for. I find it very upsetting that if you try type changes lyrics into Google, the version that it gives you is by XXX Tentation, and I don't know who or what that is, but it's not what I wanted. So yeah, so uh, changes um, from a year before, like which contains the lines that have been mass circulated in the past couple of years, particularly most recently alongside images of Greta Thunberg, with which is. And these children that you spit on as they try to change their worlds are immune to your consultations. They're quite aware of what they're going through. Mm-hmm. I think that it's con- a continuation of that message. Like he's seeing older gener- generations that are cynical and disillusioned, putting down all the new ideas that are coming up and trying to ignore them. And the message to save the world is empower your youth. 
Mm. Like listen to the new ideas that are coming up and challenge the status quo. Okay, I can see that. And that would also explain like why it's very unclear as to how he himself as a rock and roll messiah alien person saved the world. It's not he didn't. He empowered the youth through like this huge fan base that he was able to gather through this cult of celebrity and his his compelling androgyny and universal appeal to get that message to mounds and mounds of youth who yeah. then in mass went and changed the world. And then in his um lyrical changes to it ain't easy Mm -hmm. when he's saying it ain't easy to get there Mm -hmm. it's not the good lord will save us it's the good lord will help us Mm -hmm. like ziggy stardust is not doing it for you Mm -hmm. but pointing out what you need to do to empower you to do it yourself Mm -hmm. okay that's my read on it it doesn't explain what the crisis was, but you said it's already ambiguous there on purpose. No. But And there's the apocryphal stuff about it being a resource shortage, but... Well, no. I think it's... You're to- talking about a per- period of, like... If you're talking about what are you empowering the youth to do, mm-hmm. and what are the youth doing in se- the 70s, they're marching anti-war protests. Mm-hmm. People are dropping bombs on each other and killing each other across the planet. Mm-hmm. And what the message is, is listen to the people who are out in the streets saying ban the bomb. Yeah. Okay. Especially as it's late sixties to early seventies that we've been writing all this. Yeah. This one came out in seventy two, right? Yeah. So. Yeah, no, that makes sense. It is still like it's not clearly spelled out, but it is I guess the empowering the youth message I think is there to be read in the in the lyrics, but the actual crisis is I think intentionally vague. Yeah. Okay. So if we pick the album apart sufficiently any themes that you want to talk about? Any gender sexuality stuff you want to talk about? Well, I think we did talk about that a little bit. Like, Ziggy Stardust as a persona and as depicted in the music was this androgynous, larger-than-life figure with an appeal that was defiant of gender lines. And he's described in, like, stuff about the album as omnisexual or bisexual. And so, like, seems to have been very prolific with his sexuality and that's something that was true of Bowie in this persona and it is interesting because Bowie has then like gone on the record as saying that he himself isn't bisexual and does not have any sexual interest in men that that was purely part of that persona which is interesting because it kind of begs the question on like when someone's telling you conflicting things with their words and their actions you know where is where's the truth you know and if this is a persona you made and you assumed in all aspects of your life for several years is it really not you in a way it's it's, there's some complicated issues with identity there especially because i'm hesitant to ascribe a label to someone that they themselves have disavowed yeah and it's difficult because like i mean i i've said to you before i would have been i would be very interested to know how bowie would describe his gender identity if he was around today as he did walk that line so much with androgyny not just if you were around today but if you were born later if you yeah. were if he were gen z or or, or, millennial. or millennial yeah where he would sit on that line having been born in the 50s i think so yes because he was in yeah. he, he was like 28 when he did this album which is still just annoying having been born in the 50s in a world where sexuality is still being criminalized and gender identity isn't even a question that is in any way mainstream was still a question but not mainstream mainstream. like i think some of the contradictions that come from him might stem from that 
But at the same time, it might just be that he was an extremely odd person who explored a lot of different avenues. Mm-hmm. It may have been more about asking the question or bringing up the issue to other people, even if it wasn't something personally compelling for him as a human. Like even if it, even if he didn't have questions about his gender identity or sexuality, he may have just wanted people to think about it as a thing. Yeah, I mean, if you think he's contemporary with Queen and other artists who were openly or not openly homosexual. And, you know, I think drag culture was really starting to gain traction in this period as well. Like, he may have just wanted to put those issues center stage, even if they weren't central to his own understanding of his own identity. I don't know. Depending on what you mean by drag culture, I mean, that that's something that within the gay scene dates back a decent amount further than that. Because mm-hmm. there were certainly people with drag personas in the 30s. Hmm. You just had to go to the right clubs. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, issues of gender were, you know, being yes investigated in the 30s as well. There's yeah. um, a history of a, believe, a trans woman spy for the French in the 1800s. But anyway, or at least intersex, if not. But Okay, anything else you want to talk about whole album-wise? I don't think so. Um, Is there anything else that you want to talk about whole album-wise? No, I I think we did a fairly good job of, like, referring back as we went through. I hope that we didn't repeat ourselves too much. Okay, so I think the big question here is, what is the story primarily about? Is it more about the world and the problems in it? Or is it more about telling a story about celebrity and perhaps an autobiographical look at Bowie? I do think it's definitely about both. I think it's using the one to do the other. I think it's using this allegorical narrative of a rock and roll messiah to illustrate both the platform of celebrity as it was growing in the 70s and the cost of celebrity or the the difficulties of, of this thing that seems so great. And it's it's like that too much of a good thing kind of a situation where a lot of people aren't going to take you seriously or kind of be dismissive of you if you say your problem is that you have too much fame and attention and fans. And it's like, no, yeah, it sounds narcissistic and ridiculous, but they are actually real problems when it comes to trying to maintain any sort of mental equilibrium, keep your ego in check, and keep sight of what's actually valuable in life. It's like first world problems, sure, but it's but they're still problems, I guess. There's a really great clip from an interview with Bowie where he's saying, you know, people always think it must be really great to be a rock star and married to a supermodel. And I have to tell you, it is. Yes. With this big shit-eating grin. Yes. And I don't think he's trying to deny that these things are awesome. I think he's really showing, though, how easy it is to get carried away and yeah. to get brought down by your own success, ultimately, with the portrait of Ziggy's downfall. Yeah. I'm inclined to say that there is a weighting towards it being about celebrity and perhaps about Bowie to an extent. I think that the first half of the album is weighted towards talking about the world, Mm -hmm. and then the second half is weighted towards talking about celebrity. Mm-hmm. But I think that it's a, the celebrity is the stronger line that runs through both parts of it, mm-hmm. and I think that that's I think that's um, corroborated by the fact that a like Ziggy is a thing that goes throughout the plot, and as I say, I think the world issues are solved by song four, maybe five. But also the fact that, as you say, the problem isn't stated mm-hmm. for 
what's going on with the world that's left as a little bit more nebulous whereas we get a pretty full picture for the issues of celebrity mm-hmm. and, and the advantages of celebrity mm-hmm. you you can make a difference as a celebrity but if you get carried away and there's a lot of temptations then you can end up in some dark places yeah if you get worshipped like a god you need to remember that you aren't right okay like even some of the songs that i didn't think were necessarily clear commentaries of celebrity I was looking up the lyrics to Alien Easy because it was a cover and the lyrics weren't included. And there was some stuff that was saying, oh, this song is about being a struggling artist, you know, about the kind of slog period of time before you kind of break through. Um, and so I think there's definitely some bits of that earlier, mm-hmm. too, where it's still kind of a commentary on celebrity a little. And same thing with like Moon Age Daydream and, and Starman of just it's like still sort of hinting at the platform and like this larger than life role that celebrities have in our culture. I can't really see a good argument for five years being commentary on celebrity, but so I think there's something to your idea of like the first half is less about that. Yeah. Should have saved the conversation about the vinyl structure to for this part of Yeah, I think it's fine. Yeah. Okay. So a smaller, smaller, big question than usual. I yeah, but I think it's important. I think, I think we have less to say about it now because we talked about it a little bit throughout. You know, yeah. where it's like because it is the story of a celebrity going through a downfall. We already talked about what that looks like and what those problems are, so we don't really have to rehash them in this discussion. We can just sort of point to that. The point of the big question is that when we get to it, we have answered something. Yeah. So, okay. But I think the bigger question is when eulogizing a bandmate, exactly how much should you talk about how great they looked? I don't think that should necessarily be the focus of your speech, honestly. Especially, like, really specific anatomical details. I mean, would it be okay if you, say, narrowed down your focus to how well hung they were and whether they had a god-given ass? As long as you throw in some lines about their complexion and their hands. None of that's weird. Their sweet, sweet hands. Yeah. I mean, yeah, almost every description of Ziggy in that song is a physical description. And they're all also descriptions of Bowie, which makes sense because Ziggy Stardust was his persona. But he was also writing it about himself at that point. Which is pretty hilarious. Screwed up eyes, because he had the aforementioned pupil damage thing going on. And, And screwed down hairdo. Which I think was just because he had weird hair. Did fun, crazy hairstyles like an anime character or something. Because it was not just screwed down hairdo, it was like some cat from Japan. Yeah, it's all either about how great he was at playing guitar or how hot he was. Mm-hmm. Did I mention narcissism already in this podcast? I believe you did, yes. But you know what? When you're David Bowie, it's kind of justified, I guess. He was pretty amazing. Yeah. The world is poorer without him. Yes. But yes, I do think it's weird to talk about how well-hung and, you know, great-assed your bandmate was. I mean, like, I think it's maybe perhaps okay to be, like, like to make a nod of appreciation to the mm-hmm. fact that our dearly departed, or, you know, dearly absent in this case, in my opinion, um, was, you know, pretty popular with everyone uh-huh. um, who had eyeballs. Mm-hmm. But m- maybe, like, going into the exact details is, is a bit too far. But it does make for a very compelling and memorable song, which I think is the point. There we go. So, 
We apologize for any background noise in this. Our neighbor is mowing his lawn right by our recording studio because that's the thing to do in the middle of winter. Anyway, like at the end of the day, I think it was the correct artistic choice because it's an enduring classic that's just awesome. I think the audacity of it is part of what makes it so great. Yeah. I think it's, it, maybe it's more like what you think about your bandmate, like, and you're just laying it all out there. Like, this bandmate is drunk giving this eulogy and has no filter. And they're just like, ah, oh, well hung, snow white tan, God given ass. Yep. And I, there was that time we were going to crush his hands. We were all jealous. <sighs> like, that, that is a person with no filter. It, it reminds me of uh, that wedding we were at where the bride's sister got up to give a speech and explained how her parents always loved her sister more and that she was the princess of the family and that when she was dead, she'd just be a dead princess. Yeah, don't drink before speeches. Yeah, there's a slight train wrecky quality to it. It's kind of amazing. Yeah. I do kind of want to know how many times we say hung and ass in this podcast. Hmm. Just keep a little tally when you're editing. Don't do that, it'll be depressing. Okay, so... Fun facts. We did apparently rename fun facts to fun facts and interesting tangents. So I'm not sure if this counts as a fun fact or an interesting tangent, but the song Lady Stardust is generally understood to to allude to Mark Bolan, who was a friend and rival of David Bowie. Uh, Mark Bolan was a pioneer of glam rock in the 1970s. Hmm. So a demo version of what became Lady Stardust was originally called He Was All Right, parentheses, a song for Mark. With a C, because Mark Bolin spells his name with a C. Hmm. Huh. That makes an interest... Going back to having talked about Bowie's sexuality previously, mm-hmm. um, that does make an interesting case when you look at lines like, Love I Could Not Obey, mm-hmm. if that song was originally intended to be someone standing watching Mark Bolin play instead of Lady Stardust. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah. May have had a bit of a thing for him. Oh, interesting. Did you have any fun facts? I have one and a half fun facts. Okay, that's odd. <laughs> the original album was released many years before, but on my birthday. Huh. June 16th. So neat. There we go. Now you will know when to buy me birthday present. Okay, so the, the fun fact I have is a really silly one. Mm-hmm. So there is a conspiracy theory that um, David Bowie predicted the rise of Kanye West. Okay. There is a lot of, quotes evidence for this that is not particularly compelling. Okay. However, however, it is worth noting that um, if you look at the album cover, which we have around here somewhere, if you look at the album cover, Bowie is standing underneath a sign that reads K West, which turns out to actually be an old tailor's in London. But people have suggested that that is intended to be Kenny West, and he posed in front of the old tailor's. Because it is the heralding of Kanye West. And uh, the opening song of the album, Five Years, um, obviously prophesizes that the world will end in five years if no one comes to save us. And eight days short of five years after the album was released, Kanye West was born. Okay. <laughs> Which is an amazing coincidence. And I, if you have 20 minutes to spare, go and Google it because the conspiracy theory is hilariously dumb. 
Um, and most of the people writing about it are very aware of how dumb it is. It's it's an entertaining couple of minutes for you. Okay. Not what I expected to hear about on the fun facts section of the podcast, gotta say. What, why would you foretell the coming of Kanye West? Is he supposed to be some sort of messiah? Um, I believe that he was supposed to take over music and sort of be a messianic figure for music. I believe that one of the other pieces of evidence was that David Bowie's last album was Black Star, on which the third track was Lazarus, mm-hmm. which is obviously the person that Jesus raises from the dead. Mm-hmm. And the same year, Kanye West released an album in which the third track was called I Am God, which I think says a lot more about Kanye West than it does about the possibility that David Bowie predicted that he would, quote, save music. Okay. All right. There, there's, there's even more to it. I don't remember all of it, and I refuse to read it again with my own two eyes. <laughs> I think we're good on fun facts, though. Uh, yeah, that, that seems like enough for the next few episodes, really. Yeah. We actually have feedback this week. Yep. One of our friends and listeners, Andrew Powell, has come back with some refutation of our assertion that the change in Scrooge is somewhat ambiguous in the movie as to whether it's actual kindness or just inspired by fear. Yeah, so he suggests that it's actual kindness because Christmas present is the most transformative of the hauntings in the film. Which Um, I would say is also true of the book. Yeah. While Christmas past shows him who he was and how he got there, it's present that shows him the Cratchits, and that's the real game changer, as he sees how shitty Bob's life is and how sick Tiny Tim is. Scrooge sees it and realizes what he's done to the kid, and even with that, Tim is just, quote, the jolliest little thing. Yeah, Andrew specifically calls out that you can kind of tell reading between the lines and knowing about the time period that Tiny Tim has rickets and TB, or tuberculosis. And rickets is caused by a poor diet, which would be Scrooge's fault for not paying Bob sufficiently to feed his family. And TB... Um, requires a lot of expensive medications that Bob presumably can't really afford to treat the illness. Yeah. I can certainly see the argument that Michael came of Scrooge is much more concerned about Tiny Tim and feels for him and that, like, there is a kindness there. He realizes that it is his fault and wants to repair that. I think that there is still an aspect to which he... Fear is a major motivator there. Mm -hmm. And the care for Tim is very direct. It's, I did this thing, and I feel I ought to fix it. And it's someone I know. Mm -hmm. Whereas I feel in the book, it's a more blanket everyone. I mean, in the film, he still gives to charity, etc., etc. But I think that we see a more broad, like, I should be better to people in general. Mm -hmm. Especially with things like his old boss and things. Yeah. As opposed to, I should be better to people I know that have some sort of effect on my life. Mm-hmm. So I, I think it's a valid point, and perhaps we were a little bit unfair. I still think that the book does a better job of showing it as a, you should be kind because you should be kind, rather than a, you should be kind because otherwise no one will care that you're dead. Mm-hmm. It's still peppered in in the Dickens version, but it's much less weight on it than I think there is in the film. Andrew also added an addendum to my commentary on the dead nails. I had mentioned that the phrase dead as a doornail comes from the fact they used to make doors by hammering nails through planks and then bending them over so that they couldn't be pulled out and that that's why they were dead. Um, he has added that they can't be reused if they've been bent over. Which, yes, 
but also that it's um, this was particularly important because they nails were incredibly expensive at the time, just because they were extremely hard to make as a blacksmith. And it would actually get to a point where families who are in extreme uh, financial complications might actually burn down their homes and sift through the ashes for the nails to sell them, which suddenly sounds extreme. Yeah. Huh. Uh, okay, I think that that is our feedback. Did you have any other late thoughts or anything? I don't think so. Okay. I think that is it for this week, then. Mm-hmm. We had said in our previous episode that the episode after this one would be Veronica Mars. If you haven't seen our social media post, it turns out that was a lie. We're actually going to do The Big Sleep next week and then Veronica Mars the week afterwards because I looked at our schedule and realised it was dumb to do it the other way around when Veronica Mars draws to a certain extent upon the things set up by Raymond Chandler's The Big Sleep. So we're talking about The Big Sleep by Raymond Chandler next week, which will be fun because that means that I've got to reread it and Charlene's got to read it between now and then and we only own one copy. In the meantime, you can find us on social media on Facebook and Instagram at Unramblings, on Twitter at UnramblingsPod, and you can message us with ideas for future episodes, feedback, questions, complaints, anything really. Recipes. Take some recipes. Uh, to unramblingspodcast at gmail.com. And please feel free to continue the discussion either on any of our social media pages or just by using the hashtag unramblings, and we will try and chime in. Thanks for listening to Unramblings. We hope that you will join us next week. Do you want to say bye too? Oh my gosh, our cats have been so loud during this recording. I, I'm sure he knew. <laughs> you don't need to mow that side. You don't need to mow the lawn. It's fucking December. I'm sorry, it's January 1st. It's definitely January 1st.